So men and women of God often face times of crisis. Some of you might be in a crisis right now. Elisha and his servant faced a major crisis in this passage today. So I'm going to start by telling you about a crisis in my life. During the summer of 1994, my wife Shannon and I directed a team of eight InterVarsity Christian Fellowship college students on a missions trip to Kazakhstan in Central Asia. We were teaching English and learning Kazakh. Each of the Americans on our trip had a Kazakh roommate. All of the roommates were Muslim. Ten days before leaving Kazakhstan, I had to go buy tickets back to Moscow with our Kazakh friend Tana. And in order to buy the tickets, I had to carry all of our cash, $2,400, and 10 passports, one for every member of my team. It was all in my backpack. As we were going to the the ticketing agency, the bus that that Tana and I were on broke down, which was not an uncommon occurrence in Kazakhstan. So they had to take our crowded bus and join it onto another crowded bus to make one extraordinarily crowded bus. It was chaos. And in the midst of the chaos, I got separated from my friend Tana. As I was standing there, I noticed, oh, the zipper to my backpack was open. Well, that's a problem because I've got my cash and my passports in there, right? That's bad. And so I just rummaged around in my backpack to make sure my cash and passports were still there. They were not there. And I thought, I must have left them at home. And then I remembered, no, I put them in my backpack. I put them right here. I was robbed. In the chaos, a thief reached into my backpack, tucked underneath my arm. He unzipped it, grabbed the passports and all the money. I was in shock. After the shock wore off, I was devastated. All of our money, all of our passports, gone. That was the worst day of my life. I was a complete and total failure as a team leader. To this day, in the realm of InterVarsity, my wife still works with InterVarsity. She does in-campus ministry. In the realm of InterVarsity, people find out that I was the team leader that lost $2,400 and 10 passports on a missions trip, 11 time zones away, and people say, you're the one. I am infamous in InterVarsity lore. They do case studies of me to help missions trip directors in the future. So what can we learn from Lamb's incompetence here? I had to go back and tell my team what I had done with their money and their passport. As I told them, I wept. I was totally responsible for this tragedy. Now, we prayed, because it's a good thing to pray in the midst of crisis. And we began a week of praying. And as we attempted to get our passports and money back over the next week, nothing was working out. And sometimes when we pray, it doesn't seem like anything happens. It was now Wednesday. We were supposed to leave the country on Saturday morning. The U.S. Embassy was having troubles issuing passports. 
But to leave the country, we needed exit visas. Visas normally take a week or two. The money that was wired from the U.S. to replace the $2,400 that I had lost had arrived in the Kazakh banks. But the Kazakh banks did not have enough dollars, did not have enough American cash to pay us. And it might not, they might not have it for another week. And I had just found out that the, we had been told initially that we were going to pay a, a, a discounted fare, $800 for all of us to leave the country. But we found out that, oh, we might have to pay the higher fare, $2,000 for us to leave the country. We needed cash to get passports. We needed passports to get visas. And we needed cash, passports, and visas to get tickets. And we had nothing, and it was less than three days. The Kazakhs were saying, God is punishing you because you are not Muslim. Okay, great. I go to be a missionary to the Muslim world, and I'm doing anti-evangelism. People are moving away from the gospel because of me. We needed God to deliver us. A bit like Elisha and his servant in 2 Kings chapter 6. Here at Calvary Vision Church, you're talking about making an impact. I've been focusing on the life of Elisha, a prophet who made a big impact in the story of Israel. One of the ways he made an impact was through prayer. He knew that God listens to prayer. So just to review a little bit, um, in January, on, on January 19th, I spoke on 2 Kings chapter 4, God Provides. Then the next week, I spoke about how God heals in the story of Naaman in 2 Kings chapter 5. Today, we're going to talk about how God listens in 2 Kings chapter 6. And the next week, if you're going to be here, hopefully you'll join us, we'll talk about how God saves in chapter 7. But chapter 6, there's a lot of great stories uh, uh, in, in, in the book of Kings. Elisha's got a lot of great stories. We're going to talk about the story of God, how, provide, how God provides in a, an unusual way. So the company of prophets need to make a new home, uh, to, maybe to, to welcome Elisha in their midst. So they chop down some trees. And while they're chopping down a tree, the axe head from one of the, the axes flies off and lands in the Jordan River. This tree-chopping prophet cries out, Oh no, my Lord, it was borrowed! <laughs> this prophet was essentially a lumberjack. Now, he was a lumberjack, but he was not okay, if you know what I'm talking about. At this point in Israel's history, if you know anything about archaeology, this is the mid-Iron Age II. So, and again, I realize most of you guys are probably not archaeology nerds, but if you do, if you know a little bit about archaeology, you'd know iron was very valuable at this point in time in history. So this borrowed axe head would be comparable to like a really nice expensive chainsaw today. Okay? This was this was this would be this would be worth a lot of money, particularly for someone that didn't own a lot. Any of you who have damaged or perhaps ruined 
a borrowed tool should be able, yes, should be able to, Carl can, can empathize with this man. When we were um, borrowing a friend's car in England, this was like almost 10 years ago, we borrowed some, uh, a family's car in England. We got into an accident in their car, and we totaled their car. Oh, yeah, that was bad. I, I know how this lumberjack, this prophetic lumberjack felt. But God, but Elisha knew that God provides. So Elisha intervenes. He asks the prophetic lumberjack a question. Where did it fall? And Elisha likes to use props in his water miracles. In chapter 4, he added salt. 2 Kings chapter 4, he added salt to the Jericho spring to purify it. Um, In chapter Uh, Sorry, that was chapter 2. In chapter 4, he added flour to a poison stew to purify that. This time, he takes a stick and he throws it into the Jordan. Throws it into the Jordan. Woo! I made sure I didn't hit anybody there. My dog were here, he would go chase that. He throws a stick into the Jordan. Now, what do sticks normally do when they're thrown into into a river? They float. What does iron do when it gets thrown into water? It sinks, yes. Iron does not normally float. But miraculously, this sunken axe head follows the example of this stick and floats to the surface, allowing it to be retrieved and returned to this owner. God, once again, provides for his people. But then the, 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 the narrative shifts to the Aramean the, the, the war room, right, the, where they're, they're plotting their military strategy, strategy to attack Israel. Now, if you remember, back in January, Aram was where Naaman was from. Naaman, the Aramean general. And somehow, the prophet Elisha has supernatural knowledge of their plots to attack Israel. So Elisha informs the king of Israel where Aram is going to attack. And it keeps Israel, Israel, the Israelites are able to move away each time. And the Israelites are, can, can remain safe. Elisha is essentially acting like a mole. An embedded spy informing the king of Israel about Aramean troop m- movements. We could have called this story Tinker, Tailor, Soldier, Prophet. Now, I realize maybe some of you guys don't know about this. This book and the movie is about a very famous um, mole embedded in the British security system. So um, if you like those kind of things, you might enjoy this. If you don't, don't bother. But Elisha's like a mole here. We don't know how Elisha gets his information, but we assume God was his unnamed source. God provided food. And sons, back in chapter 4, here he's providing military intelligence because God provides. Now the warning about these troop movements was so effective that the king of Aram, he suspected that one of his generals is somehow a mole. He's like, which one of you is, is letting the king of Israel know what we're doing? But one of, these, one of his officers st- speaks up and says, it's none of us. But it's, the, it's this prophet, Elisha. He knows what you say in your bedroom. Yeah, 
Now, how did this officer know about Elisha? Well, we're not sure, but maybe it was Naaman or one of Naaman's, um, you know, assistants. So when the king finds out where Elisha is, and Elisha is in the city of Dothan. I don't know if you can see this on here, the red line. So here's the Sea of Galilee, um, Jericho, Jerusalem's down here. Here's the Jordan. He is right here in in Dothan, uh, about 10 miles north of Samaria. We're going to talk about Samaria in just a minute. He sends, the king of Aram sends a force of horses and chariots, which is perhaps overkill, to capture a single old man who's going bald, okay? Now, Elisha's servant, Gehazi, cries out in terror when he sees the Aramean horses and chariots that have surrounded his house. And he uses the same expression that the the prophetic um, lumberjack did. Oh, no, my lord! Elisha's reason to not fear here is based on his supernatural knowledge that somehow they were the stronger side. It's easy to be a little critical of the servant's apparent lack of faith here. But in this moment of panic, he makes a wise choice to cry out to a man of God for help. How do you respond in a crisis? Some people swear. Some people go numb, like the, the deer in the headlights. That's me. When I, when I lost all that money, I was just... Some people panic. I had appear, appeared a few years ago where I was struggling actually with panic attacks. It was, a hard, it was a dark time for me. Gehazi is in panic mode. But to his credit, Gehazi knows what to do. He asks Elisha, the man of God, what should we do? When you are in crisis, tell a person about it. Tell a person who's a friend of God. Be honest, be vulnerable, and say, what should we do? What should I do? When a friend tells you about their crisis, don't try to fix them, at least not right away. Listen to them and then pray. Pray. That's what Elisha does. People of God pray in a crisis. Why? Because God listens. God listens to his people when they pray. At this point, Elisha offers the first of three prayers here. Open his eyes. Elisha wants Gehazi to see the situation from God's perspective. God has been working behind the scenes in Elisha's miracles, but now his actions are made explicit as God opens the eyes of his servant to see a force of heavenly horses and chariots of fire. What do you think of when you hear the phrase, chariots of fire? Well, for many of us, we may think about the British film, Eric Liddell, uh, from 1981. I was in college when this came out. You know, Some of you guys may not have been born yet. But this illusion of chariots of fire goes back to a poem, goes back to a song, but ultimately it goes back earlier to the story of Elijah. What a, this is what we should think of. When the scene when Elisha's mentor, 
Elijah gets swooped up into heaven in a whirlwind. And a chariot of fire separates Elijah, who's going up into heaven, and Elisha. So why does this image appear now? Well, Gehazi is worried about an army of human chariots. So Elisha gives Gehazi a glimpse of an army of divine chariots. Our God uses fiery chariots to swoop people up into heaven and to reassure people here on earth. There are more with us than with them. God plus one always equals a majority. Let's pray, like Elisha, that God opens up our eyes to see things from his perspective. Because we have a God who listens. God, open up our eyes to see things from your perspective, Lord, like Gehazi. Elisha's first prayer helps Gehazi, but doesn't really address the issue of the looming Aramean army just outside the door. Elisha deals with that next. In Elisha's second prayer, in verse 18, he calls down blindness upon the surrounding Aramean army. Wouldn't it be be great if you could make the opposing team blind while you're playing basketball? (laughs) Unfair, yeah, you can see them kind of unfair, but that'd be quite handy, right? The prophet's prayer is answered immediately. Blindness strikes the Arameans, because God listens to prayer. Now, prayers like this, where you essentially curse someone, are called prayers of imprecation. There are a lot of those in the Psalms. If you find prayers of imprecation troubling, join the club. I'm uncomfortable with them. Jesus says, bless those who curse you. But they do have their place, particularly against people who are perpetrating injustice or oppression. If you have questions about that, we can talk about them later. But after cursing the Aramean army, Elisha next deceives them and leads them into the capital city of Samaria. So this is like 10 miles away. I don't know how long it took to to lead a blind army over hilly territory from Dothan, Um, down to Samaria, but they did it. Now, people who have been blind their entire life can become quite skilled at getting around. We have a friend in our Sunday school class at our church who is legally blind. He can't drive. Um, But a few weeks ago, um, Shannon and I gave him a ride home from church, and he gave me directions. (laughs) I just thought that was kind of ironic. He's giving me directions to his home. The blind guy. But this army, they weren't used to being blind. And they were very highly vulnerable at this point. And Elisha offers to lead them. They just say, okay. They come along. Um, And then, so they arrive at the capital city of Samaria. Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. the, The capital of their enemy. And at this point in time, Elisha prays a third time. basically undoing his second prayer, requesting that the eyes of the blind be opened. Sounds like something Jesus would do, right? 
Now, at this point, we need to observe Elisha prays a lot. This is why Elisha made a big impact. He prayed a lot. Now, the joy that the Arameans must have experienced at the restoration of their sight was probably quickly dampened at the realization of their location. <laughs> okay? The Arameans couldn't begin a skirmish at this point because they were disarmed and outnumbered and surrounded. The king of Israel, like a child on Christmas morning, could not curb his enthusiasm. Can I kill him? Can I kill him? (laughs) I love that. Have you ever been in a situation where you have had total control over the fate of your enemies? When I was in college... There was a guy in my fraternity who insulted me, ignored me, and made fun of me for being a Christian. One day he came up to me as I was walking back to our fraternity house and he said, Hey Dave, how's it going? And I'm thinking, why are you talking to me? This, is, this was a first. This is what I'm thinking. I'm fine. You? And he's like, well, I'm stuck on this computer programming assignment. Can you help? Now, I was a teaching assistant for the computer science class that he was taking. And I thought, can I kill him? (laughs) But I said, how can I help you? And I helped him with his program. Don't you hate it that Jesus tells us to love our enemies? That's hard. But shockingly, here, Elisha tells the king of Israel to feed his enemies. And the king of Israel goes the extra mile kind of alluding to what Jesus told people in Matthew 5, to go the extra mile here by not just providing the Arameans with food and water, but he prepares a great feast. This act of peacemaking, worthy of a Nobel Prize, performed by Israel's king and God's prophet, effectively stopped the Aramean raiders from attacking Israel for an extended period of time. Although not forever, as we're going to see next week. Next time you're in control of the fate of your enemy, feed them, love them. The theme of loving enemies shows up several places in the book of Kings, as we looked at uh, back in January with the story of Naaman. Interestingly, political leaders in this country recently have said publicly they don't think we should love our enemies. Jesus disagrees. Elisha doesn't only love the Arameans, he trains a ruler who's been taught to fight how to reconcile and show hospitality towards his enemies. The blinding of the army of Aram shares many striking similarities to the story of the conversion of Saul slash Paul in Acts chapter 9. While Saul was killing Christians, Jesus sent a bright light to blind him. Saul was then led blind, like the Aramean army, into the capital of Aram, Damascus. Acting like Elisha, a follower of Jesus named Ananias, after hearing from God, was willing to love his enemy and pray that Saul's sight be restored, and then to feed him. Just as Elisha used blindness to reconcile Israel and Aram, 
Jesus uses blindness to reconcile Saul and the Christians. Saul's conversion, however, was far more significant than a temporary truce that we see in Kings. Jesus' love for his enemy led not only to Paul's conversion, but served as a catalyst for Paul's missionary efforts and the gospel spreading throughout the world. Love for enemies feels weak, but it's powerful. Followers of Jesus follow the examples of Jesus, Elisha, and we love our enemies. But let's just not make them blind, okay? (laughs) All right. So in this chapter, uh, a whole bunch of people make requests. Four times people, four times people make requests to Elisha. The prophets ask Elisha to join them. The prophetic lumberjack declares, oh no, my Lord, it was borrowed. Elisha's servant says, what shall we do? And the king of Israel asks, can I kill him? And three times, Elisha prays to God to open or close people's eyes. Making requests is always hard. Prayer is hard. It feels passive. It feels like we're not doing anything. And most of us need help. In order to pray, we're going to need to, do, we're going to, need to know two things. First, we have to know we've got a need. Some of us may find it, I find it hard to admit that I have a need. But we need to learn from the people in this passage who express their needs very clearly and very openly. Their oh-no prayers were simple cries for help in the midst of a crisis. The next time you're in an oh-no situation, make that your first reaction to God. God, help me. God, help me. Second, we need to know that God listens to our needs. Elisha knew that God listens because he lived a life of trusting, praying, and watching God provide. All of the requests in this story, in this chapter, display not only humility on the part of the petitioner, but also faith and the ability of the one being petitioned to provide. And every one of those instances the petition was responded to positively. God promised that he will listen, particularly when they cry out to him in their day of trouble. Which brings me back to Kazakhstan. Okay, so we're in Kazakhstan. We need cash to get passports, passports to get visas, cash, passports, and visas to get tickets. We have nothing. We are praying, and God did not seem to be listening. Sometimes when we pray, God God answers right away. And sometimes God makes us wait. So we persist and keep praying. After all of our discouragements, we're stuck in Kazakhstan. We've got nothing. This was lunch on Wednesday. We've been praying a lot. I'm thinking, I'm going to pray again. But at this point in time, I was kind of tired of just praying polite prayers. I prayed a prayer of desperation. I said, I was, I was mad. God, why are you doing this? The Kazakhs are making fun. The Kazakhs are, are, are not giving you glory. They're making fun of us. I was mad. God, why are you doing this? And then I just started to laugh. I thought, 
this is, this is comical. This is like something that would happen to somebody in the Bible. It's so bad. God must be behind it. We decided that we needed to display our dependence upon God in a dramatic way. So that night, as a team, we held an all-night prayer vigil, day and night, praying in shifts that, one, God would get us home, two, draw our, our Kazakh friends to himself, and three, glorify himself in the process. Thursday afternoon, finally, I go to the Kazakh bank, and they have enough cash to, cash to give us the money. One down. We go to the U.S. Embassy at 2.30, and after being disappointed each of the following, the previous eight days, they finally have our passports. Two down. Ah, and you know what? To this day, this is my Kazakh passport. I save this as a memorial of how God worked. Passport right here. We arrive at the visa agency at 3.30. The woman says, that's working with us, we can have our visas tomorrow morning, which was breaking a whole bunch of rules already. But our Kazakh friend who was with us says, well, that's not really good enough. So she goes and contacts the vice president of the university we were working with. The vice president of our university contacts the, the, the chief administrator at the visa agency who comes down and tells the person that's talking to us, give them their visas now. This is the former Soviet Union, and they're just like, okay. <laughs> Ten minutes later, we've got our visas. Three down, okay? We, we rush off to the ticketing agency. So literally, we are running across to catch a taxi. This was 4.30. The visa, the, t- the, the ticketing agency closes at 5 o'clock. My wife, um, the Kazakh student, Yerlan, he was, he was with us, um, and I, we sprint to catch a ta- taxi. We meet Tana, the woman who was with me at the very beginning. She's in line. It's 4.45. We're waiting in a bunch of lines. We're hoping to pay only $800, but we're expecting we'll probably need to pay $2,000. We finally get to the front of the line. They're talking in Russian. I didn't understand anything. I say to Tana, which rate are we going to pay? And she says, you will pay the cheaper fare. I said, Tana, you know we prayed all night. She says, yes, Yerlan told me. It seemed to work. I said, you bet it worked. That night, we had a celebration. We invited, not all of our Kazakh friends came, but some, several of them came and joined us, and we had a time where we praised God because we acknowledged that God listens to our prayers, and we learned that we need to keep praying even in the midst of a crisis. God is a God who listens. Let's close in prayer.